0: A lot of people talk about it, and a lot of training centered around power and control. Um, and you have talked a lot about entitlement and the offender feeling entitled. So is that different to the idea of power and control and the cycle of violence? Can you just explain a little bit about that?
1: So I would think that all of those who are doing, are committing domestic violence, Are after power and control and I think that's one reason why we want to paint them all with the same brush because they're all after power and control and we think of that as why they are violent but the question becomes why does this person want power and control over their victim and so the underlying motive of why they want domination and control is different, and that's what makes all the difference in the in the patterns. Well,
2: I have a question, Dorothy. when I was in the states with you and we went to a conference somewhere because we went to quite a few, they were talking about infidelity and its role in Family violence, and so in your in your screening, do you um, do you talk about infidelity and and the role it plays in controlling and coercive behaviour, emotional abuse, often um, sexual abuse, uh, because family law here is a no fault system, and so um, we don't we don't look at infidelity, but I often see it coming through, and I it really resonated with me because when I was hearing this, I thought, oh, wow, how does that even factor in? But now I'm seeing a lot more of it and can really identify how infidelity actually plays a significant role in family violence.
3: Yeah. You know, uh, my response to that is that that kind of behaviour is evidence of something. Yes. Right. And, but... What Dorothy and I will talk about tomorrow is that if we get too stuck on their behavior, then we're gonna miss what's the motive underneath the behavior. And so, for example, three people can strangle their partner, but all three people can do it for different motives. And if we get stuck on the behavior of strangling, which is a serious behavior, I'm not minimizing that, but if we get stuck on the behavior, then we miss what's driving that. What's going on? Yes. And when we talk about infidelity, you know, then that's evidence of something. So, what's driving that? Is that a uh, you know an entitlement belief that I could just have relationships with whoever I want, and my partner still has to do whatever my partner wants? Or is that me trying to hedge my bet because my partner, it's just a matter of time before she's leaving. So how do I have somebody else on the side? So in case my partner leaves, I have somebody else. There's lots of motivations that are possible for someone who is, in uh, I, I don't know what the word would be, but it, you know, using infidelity, right? If they're, if they're sleeping around in multiple partners and understanding that motive is key. Yeah.
2: So Dorothy, how many categories do you have for your for the motives of perpetrators? There
1: are three overall, but the survival-based, there's a type one and type two. And there is a subtype of the entitlement called materially motivated. So when you look at it that way, there are actually five. So what are the other, what's the other there's survival one. base, yep. type one, type two,
2: entitlement, materially motivated, and sadistic. And sadistic. We haven't talked about that. Just no. Can you tell us about the sadistic perpetrator? I think that would be a pretty bad one.
3: Mm. Uh, you know, the, the, the sadistic <laughs> just,
0: is. Just yeah.
3: you know, commonly, when we talk about this in workshops, it's the most sexy component because people are drawn to serial killers and sadistic behavior and they want to understand. It's just so far different than what most of us do, right? (laughs) And the hallmark of the sadistic is the planning and plotting over time in order to cause great harm. There is a sense of trying to own their victim partner, mind, body, and soul. Uh, There is a pleasure that they get from uh, not only fantasizing and building the planning, but also inflicting the harm on somebody. And so at a uh, conference that we gave in the United States, we we talked about the sadistic base of motives. And at the break, uh, this man comes up to me and says, you know, Steve, uh, I just want you to know that uh, I have this list in my office of all of these people who have caused me great harm in my life and I spend a lot of time in my office thinking about how to destroy them professionally or personally and I have these plans and every now and again, I will put one of these plans into motion and I will watch somebody's professional career go up and smoke or watch their family just disintegrate in front of my eyes And I'll go back to my office and I'll light a cigar and I'll pour myself a glass of scotch and I'll sit back in my chair and I'll go, Yeah. And I looked at him, I mean, you know, there's fifty people in the room, and we're having this conversation in the middle of the floor. Red flag. uh, And I said, Wow, that's that's sadistic. Mm. And he says And he says, I know. And he just turned around and went back to his chair.
0: And he might put you on his little list next year. He could
3: be. But what he taught me that day was that, number one, he was a domestic violence leader in the community. And an attorney. Mm -hmm. He was an attorney, highly established, Mm -hmm. very bright, very capable, highly respected, hiding in plain sight, Mm -hmm. as many of them will do. But he taught me or reinforced to me that People who are sadistic know they're different, and they have practiced hiding in plain sight since they were very young. Mm -hmm. And so they're much better at hiding in plain sight than we are at identifying them. them. So I'm confident that in my years of thinking that I'm this really good men behavior change facilitator that I've had men who are sadistic right in front of me, and I would have no idea. The, the way we ultimately identify these people most commonly is through contact with their victim and their partner. And they tell a different story. Uh, and Dorothy, you might want to add to that.
1: Well, for the most part, what I find is that those who are sadistic, um, they are some of the brightest of the offenders. And they often have a position in the community with a whole lot of power. So attorneys, chief of police, um, professors, the head of a university. We're talking about people who uh, do everything they can to have a great cover story. So they will be the head of the Boy Scouts in that area. So once they put their plan into action to destroy someone, nobody wants to believe. When the, If the person says, help, this is happening to me, it's like, they must be crazy. I know John. John is great. In fact, I worked with two wives of a sadistic person who has his name on a domestic violence shelter program building. And that's what they do. They they have the best cover. It's kind of also like a police officer who finally got recognized for being a, a child abuser. Yeah, I was big gonna time. say, it's
0: a little bit like a sex offender. They're mm-hmm. often in positions. Of power with access yes. to children, uh-huh. mm. and I've I've had cases where um, there's been that sadistic type of offender, and they're very difficult um, to work with in terms of protecting the child or protecting um, the woman in those circumstances, or to pr- to prove that that's the case. And they're very clever at trying to make those persons look like they're crazy, mm-hmm. and um, and and believable and so they often in those matters it's often the woman that will lose her child. Yeah. Unfortunately. And, yeah, yes. And and their assets. Yes. And um and in those matters they will make allegations of mental health against mm-hmm. the woman. Alcoholism. Or alcoholism. Or even um and what I wanted to ask you about, particularly in those sorts of matters, Because I understand that there's a high correlation of, and I may be wrong about this, but there's a high correlation of sexual abuse, uh, domestic violence, and sexual abuse of children. And um, we see that um, women will make complaints about sexual abuse um, of their child, and those complaints will often be dismissed. And you'll see, if and as I've not done that, that's not she's just crazy or whatever, have you? Do you find that that's a trait in those sadistic personalities, or just? in any of those sorts of cases?
1: We see quite a few cases like that where, and and it isn't only in the sadistic cases, but yes, in the sadistic cases too. But I think that there's plenty of research that that shows that one of the reasons women are terrified to leave is what's going to happen to my children when I'm not there to protect them. And so we have, as societies, we have all of these reasons about, well, you need to leave to protect your kids. You need to leave in order to have a good life. You need to leave, and we can have the list. But if we look at what research shows, it is for all of those reasons that the victim should probably stay. And so it's we don't want the victim to stay, but we as a society have to make it possible for them to to leave and for the children to be safe.
0: But have you found in your programs and working with offenders that there has been a um, correlation between violent behavior and sex, sexual assaults of children? Have you found yes. that? And so in, in that sort of... Um, behavior Have you found that your fendom program your program has assisted in um, change of behavior with the sex offending or have you found that that program isn't suitable to those sorts of people? That's,
3: that's a great question uh, And where my mind goes when you ask that was Jimmy who was a survival based motive who spent five years in prison for sexually abusing his stepson? And he comes to our program and he is dedicated to trying to do whatever he has to do in order to recover, to be, to have a better life, to be able to be healthy. And so when he comes up to his final project, which we call it the week 27 uh, project, we ask him to make a list of all of their abusive behaviors. And he very explicitly put on there the sexual abuse of his stepson. And um, he said that. And the four or five of the men in the group stood up and left. They were indignant about how someone like that could be in a program. And uh, I say all that to say it's very, very hard to create a safe place in a men's behavior change program for people to talk about their sexual abuse of their kids. And I believe one of those pieces is the trauma of how many of them have been sexually abused themselves. Uh, And so I would acknowledge that we have not been effective in being able to really help men take ownership of that behavior because uh, it's, it's a very reactive topic to those who are sitting in there with sexual abuse histories themselves,
2: but
0: uh, and there's also though the category that a lot that there's a lot of sex offenders who haven't been sexually abused. You bet. So I guess that in some respects, your program might not be suitable for some of those offenders.
3: That's that's my intuit in, intuition that that we're not suitable for that. Uh, I would be more than happy to explore how we could become suitable for that if that was possible, but I, I don't have that answer right I now. think
1: I think that a men changing behavior program that is focused on domestic violence, that's our area of expertise. Yes. Mm-hmm. And there are other challenges that Many offenders have to address if they're going to be effective in having a peaceful family. Uh, One of those challenges is drug and alcohol. Many of them have that problem. We identify that in our assessment tool that that might be a problem. Then we make a referral and say, please get a drug and alcohol thorough assessment and follow those recommendations as well. I think the mistake is to think that one kind of program is going to fix all of these different things. We acknowledge that that's there, that's needing addressed, and what we will do is let the courts know that in addition to our program, the most common one is drug and alcohol, that they need... a drug and alcohol treatment as well. And
0: I think that's a very important point because as practitioners who work in all of these areas for, say, Joplin and I, it's important that we always remember that when we're asking parents to do particular programs or our clients do particular programs, that... That program might be sued for one area, like the men's behavioural program is targeting that looking at their behaviour for change for cruelty, and then the drug and alcohol program is looking at it for something different and if there's um other offending behaviours, that may be a different program and And I think that's what you've highlighted today, which is really important um, and also some of the difficulties that um, families and children experience um in terms of sadistic behaviour which is a really scary um, sort of area because um, it is so, it's unseen and and it's not believed Mm -hmm. by so many people. Like it just flies
2: under the radar Mm -hmm. and that's... um, So are they harder to engage with through the program? Is there a lot of success around that type of perpetrator?
1: I don't think we've had enough of them identified to feel like we really know. But I'll tell you one judge, we had worked with a man that we knew was sadistic. Um, And then about five years later, his son was referred to our program. And when his son was referred, he too had some sadistic qualities. And Judge Nolan said, I want you to go to that program, complete it, and go through it again before I see you back in my court. And at the time, I thought, oh, wow, I've never heard him say that before. But I I think he was pretty smart in saying that. What we find with the sadistic is once they know that we know, what they tell us is that takes all the fun out of it. It's, it's about fooling people. I think they get more joy out of that than anything. Um, so if we're working with them, I think of it as uh, protection maintenance, but I'm not at all convinced. I think it's dangerous
2: yes. for us to believe we've
1: got them to make this major
2: change. Yeah, yeah I thought that might be the case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a very
0: interesting area, isn't mm. it?
3: The good news is that its we believe it's a very small percentage of yes. those that we serve. Uh, and it seems that the best treatment for people who are driven by sadistic motivation is that they kind of age out of that behavior. It seems that there's, you know, as people get older, that that sadistic behavior seems to have less of an influence. Uh,
1: The way I first started knowing about uh, sadistic offenders was uh, Dr. White, who was the psychiatrist at Fifth Floor Mount Carmel Psych Ward, was calling me up to come and meet with victims who were so mentally devastated by what they had experienced that they were on the psych ward and that started you know it was cases where everybody believed she was just crazy well if you are tortured over an extended period of time it will impact your mental health so then people say see but that doesn't mean that what she's saying wasn't real. And so that's how I started understanding about the, the sadistic offenders.
0: And I think that's a, a really area an area that I struggle with as um a lawyer in dealing with those cases because I I ha- I've had particular cases where I can see how that sadistic personality can really impact on my client, and you can watch I've watched um, how the system and but how the um, offender can absolutely unwind a person and their mental health mm-hmm. to the point that they lose everything mm-hmm. and there's not much you can do to stop it and it's really frustrating. So have you got any um, ideas or tips? Um, that you can give us, like we're not therapists, we're just lawyers, but on what we can do to try and put in place or refer people to um to help our clients, um, the victim what, to the victim, yeah. because watching that happen um, mm-hmm. is it's really devastating. Really devastating. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're often the first person they've told about what's going on. and um, for me, because my background similar to your background before I was a lawyer. So I've sort of had some training so I can understand their cues and what they say to me. But it's still really difficult and I wonder what I can do in order to point them in the right direction because you just watch them unwind. Yeah. To right. the point that they they their mental health is so affected that suddenly people call the mental health team on them. Yeah. They're scheduled. Yeah, scheduled and you just watch them lose their children.
2: And the other thing that I find um, really sad is the dependency on alcohol in those situations. I find that just devastating because they normally wouldn't do it. It's been a coping mechanism that they've had during the relationship and that just Mm -hmm. unwinds them even further.
0: Yeah, but in some of the matters I have, that hasn't even been an issue. It's just that and you can watch the offender, they'll do things like they'll the police and say, oh, hmm. they've been, um, you know, violent at drop-off but nothing has happened or, yeah. um, you know, they've done something to the house, they've thrown out a belonging but that's never happened or they've said something to trigger their mental health. Like they are quite turned up at a sports kind of Like they're quite cunning about it. Like In they've control. got a plan like you've described. So have you got any tips on how we handle that as practitioners? Given that we're not counsellors, we're not therapists, where do we send those people and how do we manage that?
1: If you can get them to talk with a victim advocate who can be with them and meet with them on a regular basis and let them process and let them start understanding that there is someone who believes them, who can maybe spend a whole lot more time with them than you can, Um, I, I have found that to be helpful. The problem is there are many who, if they don't understand the difference between entitlement and sadistic offenders, will unfortunately sometimes uh, nobody else wants to take that risk of believing the victim. But if you have a seasoned advocate that you can make that referral to, and do a warm handoff. That is probably one of the best things. And then if there is a community coordinated response and the different professionals understand that those are the dynamics going on, that might create a different outcome the next time the police are called to that home. You are right there. Ability to unravel the victim is horrendous and you can just see it before your eyes. On two different occasions, one in Missouri and one in Kansas, um, I've been involved in cases where the offender uh, would, after the victim would go into the grocery store, he would come around with his set of keys and move their vehicle to the other side. One was of a grocery store, the other was of the mall. But in both cases, they did that. Why in the world would they do that? Because when the victim then calls the police because somebody has stolen their car, and then they call their husband, and their husband comes along and says, oh, honey, when I was driving over here, I saw our car. Honey, you just, you parked it on the other side of the mall. Did you forget that? So the professionals start seeing she's crazy. So they do all kinds of things. There was a case in Wichita, Kansas, where the victim went into the shelter program, went into the shelter, and when uh, she was going in, she said, "Um, I need you to know, that I am uh, I have a diagnosis of being schizophrenic, and but I'm on I'm taking my medication. So they said, "Sure, yeah, you can come in." So she comes in, and after she was there four or five days, she said, "This is so weird, but even taking my medication, I've always been hearing voices but I don't hear voices now that I'm here. And they said, well, maybe you're not in that stressful situation. And so you're, you're just not hearing those now. She was there for about a month, didn't hear any voices. As the case progressed, she got access to the home and she and the advocate went into the home and there were tape recorders placed in different areas throughout the house, hidden. And there were whispers on the, the tape recorder and a clicker that the offender could start that when they were in a room. And she would say, what's that? And he'd say, what are you hearing, honey? And she'd say, I hear some voices you know, I'm just really getting worried about you, honey, because there's nothing here. So after that happened a while, she ended up believing she was hearing voices that weren't there. She presents to a local mental health center. What kind of diagnosis do you get under that? So they go to great lengths. They get into the relationship with the the desire of someday being able to, through the, all of the plotting and planning, destroy this person. Mm. So, and I've yes. seen
0: that in mm. in a couple mm. of my matters, and it is so destroying to watch mm. that happen. And it's I, um, yeah. So I think we need a whole workshop on that yeah, because just, a lot of people don't understand that, and they just think. And what happens in those matters is those people go through, those women go through, and it's primarily women, they go through solicitor after solicitor after solicitor because Mm -hmm. the solicitors don't understand that this is actually a real thing. They Mm -hmm. just think they're crazy. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, when I speak to those women, I say, no, no, like like I believe this is what's happening for you. But to try and put that information down in an affidavit, in an evidentiary form is really, really difficult and so you have to be quite skilled at doing that and I really think we have to have more education about this issue. We need to understand the behaviours, understand what the messages, um, you know, that these women are giving us um, and we need to know how to document that better and what supports are out there and about the offender behaviour and about how how and if that behavior can be changed. I think that would be a really difficult behavior to change, actually. Um, and they probably do need the program twice. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> and the devastation for those women and particularly those children um, is, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's actually heartbreaking.
1: Those are some of the most devastated, difficult children I've ever worked with.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if it's the same. Um, I don't think. Well, I don't actually know, but my experience is the lethality isn't there because they take everything from them in a different way, is my experience. Mm-hmm. They lose everything else. They don't lose their life, but they lose their stripped with of everything. Is that your experience in that? Or is it still is there still a high rate
1: of So death? someone who is sadistic, the torture over time has to get worse and yeah. worse in order for them to get their jollies. Mm -hmm. So I do know, I worked with one woman who was killed by her offender. Um, But in many cases, what I see is they, eventually it gets bad enough and one way or another, they get out, often lose their kids in the process. um, And he goes on to someone else. And
0: often someone else who looks the same, I find, mm-hmm. who has same mannerisms, um, I find,
1: and but might not have as many emotional supports. Mm. So the when they go on to someone else, because they have to get to this level of torture in order to get their jollies, they're going to want to get there uh, much quicker. And so it is someone who is developmentally disabled to some extent, someone who is vulnerable in some other way. Something is going to make it more practical for him to get to that same level of torture very quickly.
2: So when they start with the original victim, mm-hmm. is it often that the perpetration of violence starts quickly during the relationship or quickly after they're married? Or, or is it subtle? It is very subtle.
1: Yeah. Um, they might be plotting and planning for 10 years before they actually do a physical act of torture. But all the time they're, they're getting enjoyment out of the plotting and planning. They, they are very methodical oftentimes they will make a connection with her parents. So, oh, we're so fortunate that our daughter has met John and he's such a great guy. And then John will say things to her parents that make them start questioning her mental well-being.
0: It's like a sex offender, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Like grooming behavior of a child. It is. just from what you're describing to me sounds like grooming behavior with the sex industry really don't we oh well we do it because we believe in it that's why we do this work
3: and we we fell in love we fell in love and you two fell in love so there
0: we go and that's beautiful (laughs) it is it really is well
2: thank you nisha for Mm. having
0: us yes no thank you for coming it's been really wonderful to hear from you and all your experiences and um, stories and um, work that you do and your knowledge um, is incredible and, um, you know, we're very lucky to have this opportunity to share this information and that you can share that with all of us. So thank you. And Joplin, uh, it's amazing that you've been able to orchestrate all of this for us. Well,
2: wow. Steve and Dorothy have done all the work, so I'm just so happy to host them and just feel very, very, very blessed, not to sound too American, but that <laughs> I, you know, got the opportunity to meet them in 2016 and made an absolute connection with them and developed a what I consider a really beautiful friendship with mm-hmm. two wonderful people. So I feel very grateful.
3: Quite honestly, just this conversation, uh, admiring the work that you both do and the knowledge that you have about what you're, who you're serving and how you're going about your craft. It's such a pleasure to sit at a table with people who are really thinking this through and knowing what we've accomplished and where things have come, but also seeing all the important things that are yet to be done and I just thank you for letting me be a part of this little conversation. I appreciate it very much.
0: Well, thank you. There's so much more to do, isn't there? There mm-hmm. is. But
2: we've started. That's the main That's right. thing. That's yeah, right.
0: started. We've got hundreds of hours to give yet, haven't we? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Goodness knows why we do it, but we do it. <laughs>